God's blessings and good morning to everybody. And um, I am, am absolutely ecstatic with what God is doing with each one of you and each one of your hearts. And got some feedback this past week about last week and, and the time we spent in the Word there. And uh, I know things are crazy this time of year and our tensions are divided and we're pulled in a thousand different directions. But I want to stop and just say thank you. Thank you for keeping yourself focused, for keeping your keel set true to the Word of God this time of year. It's so, so important. And so that's what kind of the crux of this message series is about before Bethlehem. It's the idea that Jesus didn't just happen along 2,000 years ago. There wasn't a bad situation where God felt the need to do damage control. So he sent down his number one agent to solve the problem. It wasn't like that. What we're doing is we're diving into the idea, the truth, that Jesus is around and active before he was even born. Crazy but true. But it's tied into the idea that Jesus is God. And that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, what we often say in the creed, are together and one in essence, though they are three different persons. Jesus is along with the Father and the, and the Holy Spirit in the beginning, creating everything that we know and saying to the other members of the Trinity, let us create people in our image. He's the one saying those words. So what we're diving into today, as has been said, is this idea of Jesus as commander. Uh, Jesus as commander adds on to the idea that Jesus is word. And with Jesus as word, what that means is, is that Jesus comes as the functional mind of God. God is thinking and feeling, and Jesus is personifying that. He is the flesh fruition of God's active mind. He's the one putting God into flesh and bringing him here to the earth. And as we kind of walk through this together, um, the idea of Jesus as commander, we're going to focus on um, Jericho. And Jericho, um, as has been said before, Jericho was this city that had a, a double set of, of walls around it to protect it from the enemy. And as Jackie said previously, Jericho was the first city that the kingdom of Israel was supposed to go and conquer as they were following God into where? Into the promised land. So think about this for a minute. The kingdom of Israel was promised the promised land, Canaan. They were promised to go there and to dwell in the land. And that came with some complications because as they trusted God in fulfilling that promise, God also commanded them to conquer and take over certain cities in the promised land and desecrate there were set them, set them aside, uh, dedicate them, I should say, dedicate them to his purposes and to his glory. And Jericho was the first one they ran into. Jericho was an impossible situation. Jericho was the kind of place where people had uh, two walls to face and ramparts to face in order even to get up to it. And, um, and as you get into the history of Jericho, you can see that the city um, according to historians, both in the Bible and outside the Bible, uh, the city of Jericho uh, was functional in this story about 1400 BC. This would have been the time of Joshua. And so we have some academics out in the world who have dug up and, and done archaeological digs in Jericho and have found um, evidence that there were people there and that there was a city there. 
And what you find in the history is that um, there's still a mound there where that footprint of Jericho exists. And the walls of the city had this kind of redundancy to them. The walls were twofold where there was an entry wall and then there was a second wall. Now they would have built some stuff in between those walls, you know, dwellings or places for crops and such. But you could see the scale on the screen. And if you're listening by podcast, there's kind of a little man beside a picture of the two walls of Jericho where there's a wall at the bottom of a hill and there's a wall at the top of a hill. And inside that that top wall, that upper wall, is where the, the majority of the city was. But each of the walls was something on the order of about three to four times the height of an average person. So the place was impregnable. The place was impossible to conquer um, by human standards. And so when Joshua shows up with the army of Israel and the children of Israel, he's faced with an impossible situation. And this is at the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise. So when he's there looking at the fulfillment of God's promise, and he's at the beginning of that, he's got every reason in the world to do what? Turn around and go back from whence he came right? He's got every reason not to believe. He's got every reason not to trust. And where God finds him in that moment is stuck between a rock and a hard place because he's got the whole kingdom of Israel behind him, ready to see the promises of God fulfilled. And yet they're standing in front of a situation that looks functionally entirely impossible. And so what he finds, what Joshua finds there is an unknown person who shows up A person shows up with a sword, and the scripture says this in Joshua 5. It says, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked a very natural question. Are you for us or for our enemies? And in that moment, what was he thinking? Joshua was wondering whether this man in front of him was going to help him in his cause or was going to keep him from his cause. It's the same kind of situation with us. When we run up into a situation that seems impossible, like there's gonna have to be a miracle in order for me to get through this situation. We begin to assess everything that comes along in life at that point and put it into a category. Is this gonna help me get through this situation or is it gonna keep me away from getting through this situation? If we find ourselves in medical distress or out of work, or marriages are in trouble, or we have financial troubles. Everything that comes along in life, we filter according to that uh, issue that we have governing our whole life. Wouldn't you say that's true? We look at everything through the lens of that circumstance. That's a very natural human position. And so Joshua finds himself looking at that situation and asking the question, is this for me or against me? And will this work in our cause or will it work against? And he, just like us, is faced with a decision. In that moment, am I going to trust God? And that would be the obvious way to pose this story this morning. But the not so obvious way is that what Joshua discovered next when he was interacting with this person, what he discovered next was the idea that this person really wasn't there to be for or against Joshua. 
And we've kind of touched on that a little bit with the readings before. And look at this parallel that I kind of is discovered, a connection made between what we're seeing in Joshua as God's presence and what you might find at the end of Romans 8, starting in verse 31. Look at this scripture. It says, what then shall we say in response to these things? Paul asks the question. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he begins to kind of lay out this idea of what God being for us looks like. Now that's what we're gonna discover today as we look at what Jesus is up to before Bethlehem in the story of Joshua and the falling of the walls of Jericho. What does it mean to have God for you? What did it mean to have God for the nation of Israel as they were facing an impossible situation? Romans 8:32 says, "He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us how many things? All things," the Bible says, right? So the idea is today we're stepping back and looking what it looking at what it means to have God for us and not against us. That really means and we're going to unpack that quite a bit today. And so let's take a look at the, at the next step in the story here. In verse 14 of Joshua chapter 5, the scripture says this. The man who was standing there with a drawn sword answers the question, are you for us or against us? With a cryptic answer, neither. Uh, Jackie referred to this a little bit earlier. He says, neither, but as commander of the army of the Lord, now I'm here. Joshua's response is to fall face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Now, what you might notice about this situation is that the guy standing there with the sword doesn't tell Joshua to get back up on his feet. What Joshua is doing there in front of this guy is worshiping him. So what's happening is this man is allowing Joshua to worship him we would make the contention that this man with the drawn sword is Jesus because only God deserves to be worshiped in this way. And in most other situations where you find an angel of the Lord, the Oyon Galion, the messenger of God showing up and telling the people a message from God, when they were tempted to fall down and worship, what would the angel do? No, get up. I'm not God. But this guy doesn't do that. He lets Joshua fall to his knees and worship him. Why? We, along with the ancient church fathers and even Martin Luther along the way, believe in a sneaking suspicion that this is Jesus standing there with a drawn sword. So on this day before Bethlehem, Jesus is commander. He's commander of the armies of the Lord. But now wait a minute. We thought Joshua was commander of the armies of the Lord because Joshua commands the kingdom of Israel, right? So which army is this guy talking about? He's not only talking about the kingdom of Israel, but he's also talking about who? All the angels that we just mentioned. This Jesus is commander of the armies of the Lord. That is those we can see and those we cannot. And the commander of the armies of the Lord works in two realms the realm we can see and the realm we cannot. He has command over them both and he advances his cause in both of those realms at the same time. So what we see is we see a connection perhaps 
If you go back to Joshua 5 and go back to Romans 8, where the Bible says that this man who commands the army of the Lord said, neither, but I'm here. I'm here for you just by being here. You might parallel that with Romans chapter 8, 33, which says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for who? For us. Here's the idea as these scriptures run kind of parallel together. The idea is that we don't do anything to justify ourselves. We don't do anything to fortify ourselves. We don't do anything to strengthen ourselves for battle. We don't do anything to prepare our hearts to go against the world that comes against us. What we do is we face that situation realizing that there's a God who stands between us and that situation trying to get our attention. And in the way he's getting our attention, he equally is calling us to trust in him to lead the charge, to go before us. Back then in those times, in Joshua's days, they would send out a God, the armies that were pagan armies that weren't believing in the one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would send out a false God in front of them to go before them in battle. But likewise, Israel would have the ark of the Lord go out before them. The presence of God and all of his priests would go out before the army. And in fact, the commander of the army of the Lord is getting ready to tell Joshua to do the same thing, not with arms, but with trumpets and with the covenant of, of the Lord's 10 commandments in the ark going before them and marching around Jericho. What you're finding is this dynamic that God goes before his people when they're facing impossible situations. And as he goes before them, it gives him an opportunity to do two major things. One, to act, and two, to build trust. One, he acts, and two, he builds trust. And this is very much the situation when they were coming up on Jericho. Here's the idea. Abraham Lincoln, uh, once in a debate with Stephen Douglas, and, and this was kind of on the state stage before he got to the national arena, he was, debate, uh, he was de uh, debating a, a man called Stephen Douglas, and he said these words as a part of his debate. He said this when they were contemplating the idea of war in the United States, which would uh, soon be coming. He said, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. And he said, for God is always right. And here comes the implication for us. As Joshua stands in front of Jericho and looks at an impossible situation, and he's blocked by the commander of the army of the Lord, which we presuppose as Jesus, the question becomes not, Jesus, are you for me or against me? The question becomes this, Jesus, how can I be for you? How can I follow you into battle? Because you are the one who goes before me. How is it I can follow what you would do in this impossible situation? 
not how can you benefit me or how will you allow life to work against me? You see, when we ask that question, God, how are you going to help me out of this? Or God, are you going to allow something that's going to keep me from moving forward? We're simply asking the wrong question. And the right question becomes this, God, what are you up to? What are you doing here? What miracle are you working? What change are you affecting? Whose life are you changing? And is mine one of the lives you intend to change? It looks like this. As the commander of the armies of the Lord, we presuppose as Jesus here, he turns and he tells Joshua, take your sandals off for you're standing on holy ground. The idea becomes this. We don't simply ask God what his function is in our life. God, how are you going to serve me? We ask the question, God, how can I serve you? And how can I trust in you? With the idea that since Christ is the one who justified us, who took away our sin before a holy God, there is nothing between us and God to hold us apart anymore. And what God wants of us is trust. He wants us to trust him throughout our entire lives, whether we're in situations that seem impossible or whether we're in daily life where there isn't an impossible situation in front of us. What's he, what he wants is for us to acknowledge his presence and to dwell in it on the good days and on the bad days, on the days when everything's working for us and on the days when everything is working against us. He wants us to know that he is there, that he is in charge, that he does command the wind and the waves, that he does have command over that financial situation, that he does have command over that relational situation in your family, that he does have command over your marriage, which is struggling, that he does have command over that physical situation in your body that seems impossible. He still commands that. He still works in that. And he leads and guides us as we mature to ask questions of him that are more in keeping with his character and his spirit. Question being not, God, are you for me or against me in this situation? But God, what are you up to in this situation? And how may I join you in what you are doing? Look at what happens in this parallel as we look back to Romans chapter eight. Chapter eight and verse 35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? And look at this verse. This is that famous verse. This is 837 in, in the book of Romans. It says, no, in all these things, the church, how many things? All these things, the good and the bad, the negative and the positive, the difficult and the pleasurable. He says, no, all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. What I want you to see is this, is that Joshua is not only entering into a situation where he can conquer the kingdom of Jericho or he can lose to Jericho. The point is not whether Jericho is conquered because God has called Joshua to be more than a conqueror. 
You see the situation emerge here with what the scripture is teaching? He's called you and me to be more than the one who gets through a bad situation. He's called us to be more than the person who rejoices in good things happening to them. He calls us to be someone who overcomes and sees the high level of the stuff that's going on in our life as a function of our relationship with him. Wherein he has said, take off your shoes because there's nothing between us anymore. There's no sin. There's no power against you. There's no situation in your life where you will not have me. So get your shoes off, strip all your clothes off and flail around in the dirt in front of me if you want to. There's nothing keeping us apart. I am with you and you are with me. So stop asking me how I'm going to serve you because your life is more than that. Ask what I'm doing and I will show you what I am doing. And I will call you forward into what I am doing. And you will find a new side of Jesus that you've never seen before. A side of Jesus that goes beyond the meek and humble that we find him portrayed as in the movies. We find a Jesus who is strong, who wields a sword, who goes to battle. And not only goes to battle, but he goes into the battle knowing that he's already won the battle. So back to Romans 8, 37, this idea of, of being more than conquerors through and in him. The idea becomes this. There is nothing you can't handle if God's sovereign love is at the center of your life. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that God's love is at the center of your life, but God is also sovereign. He is king of your life. He is over your life. He's in control of your life as he is in all lives that he has created. And if we acknowledge that God is both loving and sovereign, powerful, commanding, and in charge, if we understand that he is both things, loving and sovereign, and that that love goes before us into every single day we live, there's nothing that we can't handle. Nothing. And the idea becomes this, you can face anything, anytime, anywhere with anyone. And I would say that that's even the, the bigger point here. With anyone who lacks that understanding and needs to hear that truth about God. God is not a transactional God. God is not waiting for you to trust him to get you out of the moment. God is calling you to trust him in every moment. And as a function of what he leads you into and through in your life, he is simply winning more and more of your heart. He's helping you to understand who he is. A God who is loving and what? Sovereign. Now here in America, we don't really get that whole idea of sovereign. Sovereign is bigger than a governor or a president. Sovereign is an entity like a king or a queen, that whole kingship and queenship is bigger than one person. It's like an office. It's like an establishment, right? This is the same idea with the sovereignty of God. He is all powerful and all knowing and all perfect. And at the same time, he's born as a baby at Christmas time. What does that look like other than an amazing, sovereign, majestic, eternal God 
reaching down to you and me in a form that we can understand. A baby, a baby that plays, a baby that cries, a baby that smiles, a baby that laughs, a baby who is sovereign. Sometimes it feels like our babies are sovereign when they're up at one o'clock in the morning, doesn't it? Jesus is sovereign all the time. Here's what the Bible says in that last part of Romans 8. For I am convinced, says Paul, that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor the future, powers, height, depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What I want you to see in that verse is the sovereign love of God. The love of God where Jesus is represented here as majestic as sovereign, as powerful. What that means is, is there is no circumstance or institution or situation on earth that keeps you separated from him. So why in the world would we believe that God is only active when we are down in life? God is active all the time. And he wants from us only our trust where he takes care of the rest. Now, that may seem elementary in Sunday school to us if we've heard it a few times. And here we're going to hear that a few times. But the contention is this morning, do we really believe that? Do we believe that God is sovereign? Is he our king? Is he the one who goes before us? Jesus told a story um, once to a a rich young ruler. And um, basically what he was saying to the rich young ruler is this, um, have you done all the things uh, to be righteous, to be considered righteous according to the rules of Israel? And the rich young ruler responded back, yes, I've done all these things that were required to be righteous since my youth. And then Jesus throws back a challenge to him. Basically, he says, go and sell all your stuff, all your wealth and give it to the poor. And what does the Bible say the rich man did? He went away sad, right? And Jesus comes back and he basically tells them, it's harder for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples hear that and they're greatly astonished. Basically, they're kind of afraid of what that means for them and for others. And they ask the question, who then can be saved? And how does Jesus respond, not only to the rich young ruler, but to you and me? He looks at them and says these words, and I want you to remember where this verse is. This is Matthew chapter 19 and 24. Matthew 19, 24. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, how many things are are possible? All things. The same truth that applied to the rich young ruler who walked away sad because he had great wealth applies to you and me. And even in times when we walk away from God, looking at a situation that looks impossible, he still pursues us. He still comes for us. He still desires us. He still wants us. And he establishes in us us a truth that with man, this is impossible. This idea that I can't let go of what stands between me and God. But he reiterates again, with God, all things are possible. 
It's the same message Jesus had for Joshua, 1400 BC. The idea is this, take off your shoes. Stop worrying about whether or not God is for you or against you. Dwell in his presence. Let him go to battle for you. Now, what does that mean for you and me? That means trusting God in the moment, in the moment when we face an impossible situation. Stop and ask, God, what are you up to? Now, you may be in an impossible situation where you have to react like this. And maybe in that moment, you reacted poorly. Maybe you blew up at somebody. Maybe you dropped your faith and walked away. Maybe you just had a bad day all the way around and had just had difficulty answering to the situation. You know what? God never stops pursuing us when we drop the ball. He loves us so much that he stands there again and again and again in every situation that comes across our bow and makes himself known. If we will see him and ask the question, God, what are you up to? We will see Jesus at work because that is what Jesus does. He works in the impossible. People used to call that miracles. Do we still see miracles today? Maybe not in the way we might expect, but I would submit this. If you see God in front of you, instead of the obstacle in front of you, if you see God between you and the obstacle in front of you and trust in him in that moment, that is a miracle. That is Jesus at work. And in that moment, he has accomplished what he came to do, to eradicate what divides us from a holy, sovereign God who wants us, desires us, and draws us to him and to his heart. The idea is this. What does God want in that situation? How is he drawing your faith forward? How is he making your faith stronger? And how is he using that situation to share that part of who he is with someone who doesn't have him in their life? You know, at Christmas time, a couple of things happen with people. One, uh, people become really introspective about faith things because they're faced with the idea of buying a bunch of stuff and, you know, sharing Christmas presents and having, you know, wassailing and doing fun things like that and hanging out around the Christmas tree and maybe going to church. A lot of people go to church at Christmas and Easter and check it out. But I would suggest even more than that, that people are perhaps a little bit more open spiritually at Christmas time than they are the rest of the year. It's a perfect time to share with them what you know about the eternal character of Jesus, that Jesus was not a Band-Aid. Jesus is and always will be King, sovereign, holy, perfect, and available, and willing, and able to be with us and to go before us. And that's why he came and died. And as Romans 8 said, even more than that, why he rose again. Death is conquered 
and life is born again brand new. I would suggest there are people all around us who need to hear that message. And the way they will hear it is through you. The only way you can share it, the way you speak, the way you serve, the way your home is open, the way your life is open, those particular people will hear and see the character of God through you. Let them see it in you by you seeing God in front of, between, and in command of all the challenges and obstacles of life. Those people that God will use to reach out, uh, to use you to reach out to, they have the same obstacles, the same struggles, the same circumstances. You simply know who is in command, Commander Jesus. Take the opportunity to share that part of his character with someone who needs it this Christmas time. Does this edify your spirit, this idea? It does me. It makes that little baby Jesus take on a whole new light. Powerful, sovereign commander. Right, Aaron? Aaron says, amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, thank you so much for coming from on high and for being born as a baby and for giving us all of yourself and for showing us how you're in control, how you're in charge, and how you make change in every single person's life every single day by what you do. You control the sun, the moon, and the stars. You control the temperature. You control the rotation of the earth. You control the circumstances within it. And someday you will return on the clouds and redeem it all. God, on this day, I'm tempted to think of you that is less in, in a way that is less than who you actually are. Help me to acknowledge that you came here and died and rose again so that you might be seen for who you really are. Sovereign, almighty, powerful, in control. And help me to ask the question, God, what are you up to? And follow you in that work. The Lord, as we sing and as we respond, we ask that you come and that you be worshiped and glorified, that you remake our hearts in your image and grow us to be like you in this Christmas season. It's in your name we pray and together we say, amen and amen.